0: Well, my role as a pastor has an unfortunate side effect uh, of making many people feel very uncomfortable. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that I've been having very engaging conversations with someone only for them to ask, what do you do? And I tell them, I'm a pastor. Awkward silence. Or the number of times I've been having a, a wonderful conversation where the person I'm talking to is Using quite a lot of profanity when somehow they learn I'm a pastor and a look of horror comes upon their face. Uh, now, in these circumstances and so many like them, I immediately try to set these kinds of people at ease and do everything I can to redirect the conversation, keep it engaged. But one thing these various reactions to pastors and to me in particular highlights is the innate sense and uneasiness so many of us have that this religion thing or this Christian thing or this Jesus thing isn't really for people like me. That in order for me to belong to a community of faith, to find a home in the church, that I have to clean myself up and be a faithful, joyful, and triumphant person. And then, and only then, I can belong. Then I'll be worthy to come into the presence of God. However, as one pastor points out, the lowly circumstances of Jesus' birth shows us that God's kingdom will come in unexpected ways that surprise and subvert our expectations about who his kingdom is for. In this Christmas season, uh, we've been considering the many blessings that flow out of Jesus, God himself, being born in human flesh. And we're looking at Uh, What church tradition has considered four of the earliest songs celebrating this great blessing that Jesus was born as one of us. Uh, We've considered Mary's song where we learned that uh, as a result of what Jesus has done, those who are truly blessed rejoice in Christ. And then last week we looked at Zechariah's song where we saw many reasons we have to bless the Lord for the many blessings he has shown to us. And this week we'll consider the angel's Gloria and see who this blessing is for, which is all the more surprising, given what Luke records about when all this happens. Now, many commentators have noted that given how much Luke, uh, how much detail Luke typically provides, he's the greatest uh, detail-oriented author of all the Gospels. Uh, you'll know this if you spent time with us in our Acts series. It includes so many details. Yet given all of that, what he writes about Jesus' birth is surprisingly simple, as we just heard read. Luke simply tells us that while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her first son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. That's it. Yet for all the simplicity about Jesus' birth, Luke does include an incredible amount of detail about where this happened, when it took place, and who was ruling at this time. This happened in Bethlehem, the city of David, when uh, Quirinius the governor of, uh, was the governor of Syria, and significantly, when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. Now, the mention of Augustus in particular would have conjured up all the power and glory of the Roman Empire and its authority. Augustus was the most powerful man in the empire, He was flattered by the Roman Senate as the son of a god and hailed by a poet as the son of the deified who will make a golden age once again. Further, he's the first Caesar to be called Augustus. That's not his name, but a title when the Roman Senate voted to give him that title. And Augustus means holy or revered. And up to that time, that title was reserved exclusively for the gods. Here's a man becoming a god. And an inscription even called him the savior of the whole world. And another inscription indicated that his birthday signaled good news for the whole world. And so it's this Caesar, this man who's become recognized as a god by his empire, who flexed his political muscle with a decree that everyone needed to gather to their ancestral home so that he could fill his coffers for taxes. But as one scholar points out, at such a time as this, When the world had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted God and Savior, Luke's description of the birth of Jesus challenges this imperial propaganda and proclaims that Jesus is the real Savior. Jesus is the real Lord. Jesus is the real bearer of peace for all the world. And this Jesus was born in the lowliest of places. More than that, Jesus was not a man who had become a God and then used his power to take from the poor and the lowly to make himself greater. But rather, Jesus was true God who had become man and who had done so in order to identify with the lowly and give to all who recognize their need. And so this morning, as we turn our attention from the birth of Jesus itself to the announcement about his birth, We'll see in Luke chapter two eight through fourteen that this text is tailored to teach us that the Lord's blessing is for the lowly. The Lord's blessing is for the lowly. It's for those who recognize they need blessing. They recognize they need Jesus. And we're going to see this by considering three observations about Jesus's message, life, and glory. Jesus's message turns the fear of the lowly into great joy. Jesus is. Life is about becoming low so that we might become eternally rich. And finally, Jesus' highest glory is bringing peace to those on whom his favor rests. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to understand your word. Not just with our minds, but with our hearts. That we would perceive what you're saying and receive it in faith. So that we might live lives that treasure Christ, that love you, that are faithful to you, that are filled with great joy because of what you've done for us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted. We would rejoice in him. And we would come to treasure him more and more above anything else. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible, you'd be helped to follow along in one of our community Bibles, which will be either under your seat or the seat next to you. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you can find Luke uh, on, in our passage in particular on page 857. You'll be looking for a big, bold number 2. That's a chapter followed by a small number 8. That's a verse. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted Uh, for you to continue reading on this gospel that describes Jesus' life day to day. Once you've found it, uh, take a moment to quietly prepare your heart to receive God's word. You know what insecurities you have about yourself. You know ways in which you, uh, since you're too lowly for God to draw near to you, uh, surrender those things to the Lord right now and ask that he would speak to you. Well, if you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good noise of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Here we see that Jesus' message turns the fear of the lowly into great joy. Jesus' message turns the fear of the lowly into great joy. On that great night when Jesus was born, an angel appears to shepherds that are dwelling near Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, in order to tell them good news of great joy. Yet when the angel first arrives among them to make the birth announcement, the text tells us the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now the glory of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is a way of describing the visible manifestation of God. And so when the people of Israel built the tabernacle and then built the permanent temple, the glory of the Lord descended upon it and no one could enter it because God's glory had filled it. When Isaiah has a vision, beholding the glory of the Lord, he hears the heavenly hosts around him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And how does Isaiah react being in the presence of the holy God? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To encounter the presence of of the living God, the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, is a terrifying experience. Because God, in all his holiness, exposes our uncleanness, reveals our sinfulness, demonstrates our wickedness. And in the moment we stand before him, we will know that we deserve his judgment. We'll know that we deserve death. We know we'll deserve whatever punishment he meets out. And so the last person an unrepentant sinner wants to meet, wants to stand in the presence of, is the glory of God. This is why then both the tabernacle and the temple in Old Testament times had a section called the most holy place. This is a section where the fullness of the glory of God would fill and no one would enter it. And that way the God of Israel could dwell with his people, yet be separate from them, not destroying them by being in his presence. In this way, God would be with his people in all his fullness. Yet there still had to be separation to protect his people from his holiness. Yet in one of the more tragic moments in Old Testament history, the prophet Ezekiel recounts how the glory of God rises up out of the temple and departs, going away. God's glory, God's presence, no longer with his people because of their sin and rebellion and idolatry. And since that time, for hundreds of years, the people of God had been without the glory of God. The people of God had not been in the presence of God. And now, after all this time, when Jesus is born, the glory of the Lord shines all around these shepherds. And just as Isaiah trembled before a holy God, just as any sinner would tremble before a holy God, these shepherds are filled with great fear. And what is the first word that comes out of the angel's mouth? Not fear. Not repent. No. Fear not. Why? Because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. As the glory of the Lord strikes terror into the heart of these lowly shepherds, the angel tells them they don't need to be afraid but instead they ought to rejoice because he is bringing them good news of great joy and it's this same word good news that is used to describe caesar's birth and they announce good news to the whole world because augustus caesar had been born but by using this very same phrase luke is saying no the good news is actually that jesus has been born and this is what jesus would later say i proclaim to you good news of the kingdom the message of the angel is the same message of Jesus in his life. And it's good news, as the angel says, for all the people. But what is it? What is the good news? Why could this news be so good that those standing trembling in the presence of the glory of God would no longer need to fear, but instead could have great joy? Well, This message has two things. First, it says, This day in the city of David, a Savior is born. The only hope the shepherds have of having joy in the presence of God, the only hope any sinner has of having joy in the presence of a holy God, is that we would be saved from our sin and be saved from God's wrath. And the good news of great joy is that this is precisely why Jesus was born. He was born a Savior. He didn't become a Savior. He was born a Savior already as a child. And He was born to die on behalf of our sin. So that instead of fear in the presence of a holy God, we can experience joy seeing our God face to face. And second, the angel says, for unto you a child is born. Pastor Sam Alberry points out that this announcement is not made to Mary. This baby is not Mary's child. This announcement is being made to shepherds. Unto you a child is given. However, many of us are so familiar with the Christmas story, it seems almost inevitable that the angel would announce this to shepherds. But just pause for a moment and think about how we would have done it. If we were making an announcement that the King of Kings, the Lord of Hosts, the Prince of Peace had just been born, where would we go? Perhaps to Quirinius, the governor. Let him know. Perhaps to the powerful, the noble, the wealthy. Perhaps we would even go to Caesar Augustus' own halls, declaring the king of kings has been born. Or if it were in our day, perhaps we would expect a statement to be issued to the United Nations, maybe we would take out a full-page advertisement in the New York Times. But if the angel had gone to those places, to the halls of power, fame, and fortune, just as Caesar Augustus' birth was announced as good news to the whole world, but actually was only good news for people like him, the shepherds would have immediately assumed, yeah, yeah, you say that's good news for the whole world, but that's not actually good news for me. This isn't a message for people like me. And we forget the shepherds are not impressive, that they're not respectable. They're not people whose lives and spirituality were Instagrammable. They were disreputable. They were rough around the edges. They were messed up. They were a people to be avoided at all costs. They were the lowest of lows in society. And so by making this announcement to them, to the shepherds, it's as if God is trying to make it crystal clear the kind of people that the good news of Jesus comes to. It doesn't come to the rich and powerful, to those who have no sense of their need, who can live their life in independence of God. That's not the way God works. He does not reveal his ways to the Caesars of the world. He is the God who sends a messenger to the lowly, to the shepherd, not just to the everyday man, but to the despised and marginalized. This baby is not born to the faithful, joyful, and triumphant, but to the faithless, despairing, and weary. And if that is you... The good news for you this morning is the angel is saying, Unto you has been born a Savior. And if you're not a Christian, and perhaps you've always thought there's too much wrong with me, I have too much need, the good news for you is that if you will turn to this Savior, to Jesus with repentance and faith, your fear can give way to joy. Because by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he reconciles guilty sinners to a holy God, So that we no longer need to fear his wrath, but instead we can feel the warmth of his pleasure as sons and daughters. We can rejoice. So, when the glory of God surrounded the shepherds in the field outside Bethlehem, yes, they were filled with great fear. But for those who are in Christ, when he returns, we will be able to enter into the power and holiness of the presence of God's glory, for we will live continually. And the atmosphere of the glory of God. And the city that is coming has no need for a sun or a moon. For the glory of God will give its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So listen, if you have never turned to Jesus, I plead with you. Come to a Savior who brings you into the presence of God. Who makes it safe for you to encounter a holy God in all his glory. So that you can finally experience joy in his presence. And so if you want to know more about what that looks like and what that means, please come talk with me after the service or any of our members. The fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let's take a moment, I think, to consider the tragedy of contemporary church culture. Ray Ortland asks, how many people in our cities are ex-Christians and even strongly anti-Christian because they went to church to hear good news of great joy, as the angels announced, but is drowned out by strife and trouble. And sadly, this is far too common. People think they ought to go to church to hear good news, but instead of having their souls refreshed and encouraged, they instead feel the pressure to pretend everything's okay, and put on a face. And People go to churches longing for the fires of hope to be stoked within their hearts, only to find a growing sense of despair as, People around them betray their confidence or undermine what they hope will happen. And on and on we could go on describing how churches have a message that's sound, have preaching that's accurate and faithful, maybe even hopeful and encouraging, but where the culture of the church defies that. Instead of experiencing great news of great joy, experience sorrow, sadness, and despair. So let's not assume that our churches and our church in particular, is faithful to the gospel. Let's examine whether they are. After all, a church with the truth of the gospel and its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel with its culture. This is why our church labors to be a church that is gospel-centered. That is, we don't only want for the gospel to be faithfully preached, taught, and believed, we also want to apply God's grace in Christ to all of life. We long for the gospel to increasingly shape our life together as a community so that our very life together would demonstrate that we believe good news of great joy. We want to be a church where the beauty of our relationships with one another and the integrity of our community commends the goodness of the gospel. And this requires us to think deeply about how the gospel should shape our lives as individuals and forms our life as a community. And then it requires us to slowly but steadily take steps towards becoming the kind of community that reflects the gospel, not only in what we preach, but in how we live. And one place in particular, our passage, I think, helps us to think about what this kind of culture might look like is actually related specifically to corporate worship. We've seen that we worship a holy God, one in whom if we stand in his presence without covering, we ought to fear and tremble. And yet we've also seen that the same God has given us good news of great joy by making a way for us as sinners to be reconciled to him. And so it's this kind of God we worship, one who inspires fear, awe, reverence, and one who inspires joy, gladness, and celebration. And if that's the case, then we should expect our worship services to be a mixture of both reverence and the presence of a holy God, as well as joy in what he has done for us. Or as Matt Merker writes, our worship should be marked by gravity, gladness, and gratitude. First, gravity, God-centered services should not indulge our appetites for sentimental spirituality. Rather, we should sing songs that beckon our heart to delight in God's attributes and deeds. Should lead substantive prayers of praise and confession. But second, gladness. Our services should reflect the life altering reality that Christ actually is risen. He's not dead, but alive. And third, gratitude. Because now we can approach God through the redemptive work of Christ. We ought to be flavored with the rich aroma of thanksgiving. Now, of course, the right combination of gravity, gladness, and Gratitude will look different in different cultures and in different churches. We should expect and hope that all of those things should be present as we worship. I thank the Lord that this is increasingly true of our church family. I think increasingly, you are making it easy for people to be honest about their sin and suffering so that people can be refreshed by the grace of God. Increasingly, you are a community that loves, encourages, that listens, that helps one another, admits all of the pressures of the world— to be faithful to Christ for just one more week. Increasingly, as we gather, we gather with joy and gladness of what God has done and with fear and reverence of the God whose presence we're coming into. And increasingly, as you lift your voices to sing of our great God with gravity, gladness, and gratitude, my own heart is filled up as you point me to the greatness of our God. Together, we are increasingly reflecting the good news of great joy that we preach and hear each Sunday as we worship and as we pursue gospel-centered community. And all this makes Sunday my favorite day of the week. I hope it is your favorite day of the week as well. But Jesus' message turns the fear of the lowly into great joy. Second, look with me again at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here we see that Jesus' life is about becoming low so that we might become eternally rich. Jesus' life is about it becoming low so that we might become eternally rich. Let's notice who Jesus is and who Jesus became. So first, who he is. We've already heard that Jesus was born a Savior. But this Savior in our text is also called Christ the Lord. So let's consider each of these identities. I know we've already talked a little bit about Savior, but just to put a finer point on it, D.A. Carson writes this, If God had perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us an entertainer. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. So what did he send? He sent a Savior. That's what we need. But Jesus is not only a Savior, he's the Christ which simply is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of people who were anointed. Typically, though, they were prophets, priests, and kings. And although near prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, the Old Testament begins to develop an expectation of one person who would be anointed in a particular way. He would be a prophet better than Moses, who would speak only truth on behalf of God to the people. He would be a priest better than Aaron or Melchizedek or any of the Levitical priesthood. He would stand as the perfect mediator between God and his people, bringing them together. He would be a king better than David, whose reign would last forever, using his authority not for his own sake, but instead laying down his authority, suffering for the sake of his people so that they might be delivered. But Jesus is not only Savior and Christ, he's also Lord. We mentioned this in previous weeks, that this word stands in the place of the Old Testament word for Yahweh, the covenant name of Israel's God. This was the name they would invoke to describe the God who had a personal relationship with him. And stunningly, this name is being applied to a baby. Once again, this is the stunning story of Christmas. That God, in all his glory, has been born a human baby. And as our Savior, Jesus is worthy of our trust. As our Messiah, Jesus is worthy of our obedience. And as our Lord, as God himself, he is worthy of our worship. So I'd ask you this morning, have you trusted him? Do you obey him? Will you worship him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. This is an exalted identity. It's one that is high and lifted up. He's no less than God himself. And yet, we see how low Jesus becomes and the sign that was given. The angel announces to the shepherds that they shall receive a sign that this Savior, this Christ, this Lord has been born. But what is the sign? You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, it's important for us to realize the sign is not the swaddling cloths. Every child would have been wrapped in swaddling cloths. The sign is not that a baby has been born. Lots of babies are born every day. The sign is that a baby like this, Savior, Messiah, Lord, One who deserves to be exalted above every name in heaven on earth is not lying in a palace, but he's lying in a manger. Now, again, some of us have become so familiar with the Christmas story that we can view all of this as sort of inevitable and unsurprising. Yes, of course, baby Jesus is lying in a manger, but we forget how remarkable this really would be. When you're thinking of a newborn baby, where do you think about laying that child? Perhaps in the bassinet by your by by your bed, nicely prepared. Perhaps the crib and nursery that you spent all the time preparing. You would never imagine a baby in a manger. We've so sanitized the manger, even this one sitting right before us, that it looks fresh, clean. I wouldn't be so bad if a baby was in that. But we forget, a manger is a feeding trough. Literally, the donkeys, the horses, the sheep, and if the household was unclean, the pigs would have been eating out of this. A manger is not some nice, rustic fashion statement. A manger is disgusting. It's gross. It's revolting. And yet, this is the place. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord is resting This is where they had to lay him. A sign of just how low Jesus has become on our behalf. So reflecting on this reality, Pastor Mike McKinley writes this. Evangelicals do not often reflect on the material poverty of Jesus in comparison to some groups like the Franciscans who would emphasize it. But the fact that the Son of God would enter the world in the most humble way imaginable and then live his whole life in poverty is extremely significant. Remember, Jesus is the one who had no place to lay his head. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul written to the church in Corinth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus became poor. Jesus became so incredibly low so that his people might become spiritually rich through his poverty and suffering. So I ask you this morning, do you feel so low by your status, by your sin, by your shame, by your suffering, by whatever it is that you don't think that Jesus could possibly be for you? Do you feel inadequate and incompetent so that you couldn't possibly be good enough for Jesus? The story of one as high as Jesus, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, being described as coming solo. He's a baby laying in a manger and who lived in poverty reminds us that you cannot be so low that Jesus can't come down and find you. You cannot be so far away that Jesus can't reach you. A child born like this has something to offer the very least of us. And so never forget, whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've come from, Jesus is for you. He doesn't ask for you to fix yourself up before you can come to him. He's come all the way down to the very bottom so that at the bottom you could find him. Jesus' life is about becoming low, so that we might become eternally rich. Finally, look with me at verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Here we see that Jesus' highest glory is bringing peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus' highest glory is bringing peace to those on whom his favor rests. So finally, the angel's announcement is finished, but the rejoicing is not. When the angel finishes his message, a whole host of angels appear praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among those whom his favor is found. And what's so striking about this appearance of the many angels is that the word described them is the word host. It's a word that is used to describe the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. It's a word to describe literally multitudes of armies appearing before the shepherds. Of course, this makes all the sense in the world. Although Jesus is only a baby, the armies of the Lord are present with the Lord of hosts wherever he goes. And yet what is absolutely stunning This multitude of armies has not come to make war, but to make peace. This is what they celebrate because this is what their commander is all about. In fact, notice again what they celebrate. They sing, glory to God in the highest. What they're celebrating right now in this passage is a picture of God in his highest glory. But all that we've seen taking place, all that has been announced is, Not displaying how great God is, how exalted God is, how high God is. Rather, the announcement and the subsequent celebration is all about how low God has become. And so as Pastor T.J. Timms puts it, God's glory is not displayed by how high he can go, but by how far he can go in humility. God's greatness is wrapped up in his humility and love. And one of the truly amazing things about this God is that although he is a holy God who cannot tolerate sin, the Old Testament describes him as one who is provoked to anger by, dozens of, uh, by his people dozens of times, but not once are we told that God is provoked to love. Not once are we told that God is provoked to mercy. What this tells us is that his anger requires provocation. But His mercy is pent up, ready to spill out. It's spring-loaded. Divine mercy is not slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. And in this case, this divine love, this divine mercy, this divine humility that is willing to descend from the highest glory, from heaven itself, does so to do what? To provide peace on earth. Now, when we think about peace, we tend to think about the absence of conflict. As long as we're all just getting along, that's peace. But biblical peace is far more. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it encompasses the idea of wholeness and well-being, health and sound relationships between God and humans, between people and within the whole universe. This is what Jesus' birth and subsequent death and resurrection is all about. This is what it has accomplished. Not just to bring the absence of conflict, but to bring the presence of right relationships between God, one another, and the whole universe. To bring a flourishing life. A whole life. And this is one reason why we as Christians don't settle for a forgiveness that simply says, I'm not holding anything against you. I'm not nursing bitterness against you, but I'm not open to relationship with you. That kind of forgiveness is one based upon a peace that's the mere absence of conflict. But the peace that Christ bought with his blood is not the absence of conflict, but the flourishing of relationship. Which means that as Christians, while we recognize that unrepentant sin may prevent a relationship from being reconciled, At the same time, we will always hold out hope for the possibility of relationship, even with someone who has hurt us. We must remain open to it. Otherwise, it's possible that the person that has wronged us, we've not actually forgiven, and that we're actually rejecting the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring, that Jesus was born to bring. But who is this peace for? Again, a peace, not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of flourishing relationships. Well, if you grew up on the King James Version, or you love the Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, you you may remember verse 14 this way. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. However, virtually all scholars now agree that this phrase, goodwill towards men, in the King James Version, doesn't actually reflect what the original passage said. Rather, the more likely reading is one where there's two possible ways to translate the text. And one legitimate translation would be to read verse 14 as peace on earth among humans of goodwill, implying that there are some people who are good, and it's those people that are good that receive God's peace on earth. Now, that particular translation does not square well With basically the rest of the Bible that teaches no one is good, no not one. And so as a result, some have sought to preserve the King James Version as the more Orthodox version. But there is another way to translate this passage. I think the NIV is probably the best and most helpful on this. Let me translate it this way. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor is found. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And if this is right the meaning as one scholar points out is not that divine peace can only be bestowed where god already finds human goodwill present but instead that at the birth of the savior god's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accordance with his good pleasure in accordance with his grace and so the surprising news of this section is that god's favor was coming upon people like shepherds and that may be because at the heart of the gospel, we find this kind of joy. The twin realizations that we are not the kind of people who deserve God's grace. In fact, no one is. But that ain't God's great love, he has sent his salvation to people just like us anyway. Or to put it another way, the gospel is that I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared imagine. But I can be in Christ more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. So no wonder then Christians have spent the last 2,000 years joining the shepherds and angels and glorifying and praising God for all the things they have heard and seen. The peace of God, like anything else from God, is not something we can earn, but it's something we must receive. It's based upon his grace. And so if you can think of all the reasons why you would be an asset to Jesus, then you're not ready yet. But if you're weary and heavy laden, the peace of God can be yours today. Jesus is how God becomes pleased with us. And so the highest of God's glory is that he became so low that he brought us peace to those on whom his favor rests. And his peace makes us right with God. Once we're in Christ, we no longer have to be anxious about what God thinks of us. We don't have to be anxious about our faults, failures, or sin. Because what is now most true of us in Christ, by His grace, is that we are His. We're His sons and daughters. And so He gives us peace with God. But His peace also provides the foundation for peace with one another. When we know that we are pleasing in the sight of God, we're free to finally love one another because we're not worried about what anyone else thinks because we already know what the God of the universe thinks about us. And when we know that we're pleasing in the eyes of God, we don't need to hold the sins of others against them because God has not hold our debt against him. And finally, one day when Jesus returns, he will finally and fully establish peace throughout the entire universe. There will be no more war. No more conflict. No more fighting. Everything sad will come untrue. And it will not just be the absence of conflict. Instead of suffering, instead of sadness, we'll find the presence of fullness, the presence of wholeness, the presence of joy, the presence of everything as it always should be. And we'll experience that for the age and age to come. Jesus' highest glory is bringing peace to those on whom his favor rests. And this blessing of peace truly is for the lowly. It's not for the righteous. It's not for those who think they have it all together. It's not, again, for the faithful, joyful, and triumphant. But once and again, it's for the faithless, despairing, and weary. It's for those who recognize they have nothing to offer and everything to gain. And by the grace of God, we receive this grace when we look upon our Savior, when we trust our Messiah, when we rest upon our Lord who was and is and always will be exalted above every name in heaven and on earth, and yet who at the very same time made himself low, being born as a baby, lain in a manger, and crucified as our King. And this is what the King of all kings was glad to do for your sake and for my sake. The one who didn't need anything gave up everything to give you peace. And so now our fears can be turned to joy. Our spiritual poverty can be turned into a rich spiritual inheritance. And we who deserve nothing can experience his grace and receive his peace. So as we conclude our time together in his word this morning, I want to invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word and respond with faith. Perhaps these questions can help you do that. How is the good news of Jesus moving you from fear in the presence of a holy God to great joy? Listen, don't stay away from God fearing that you need to clean up yourself before you come to him. Instead, come to him each day with joy, trusting that the King of Kings welcomes you in. How does it move your heart to consider who Jesus is and Savior, Messiah, Lord, and who he became for you? Take a moment even now to thank him that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. And finally, which areas of your life do you need to trust God's grace to experience peace? Surrender those areas to him now and Ask that the Lord would grant you a peace that begins foundationally with knowing that you're his and that he loves you. Let's take a moment to quietly consider what God has been saying to us through his word. great and holy God in all your glory and holiness we would be right to fear you we would not have access to you and yet in your grace and kindness you surrendered everything and you became low So that we could draw near. So that we could know you and love you and experience your peace. So Lord, we thank you for sending us Jesus. We thank you for providing your son on our behalf. We pray today that you would allow this good news of great joy to get deeper into our hearts. That we would believe that even as people as low as us are the people that you came to pursue. That truth would be so deep in our hearts that it would cause us to sing with joy, it would cause us to treasure Christ, and that it would cause us to lead our lives with great joy in what you've done for us. We ask all this, In the name of our Savior, Messiah, and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.